Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 118. I'm John Bean. In today's episode, we're going to talk about all things personalization. Most people are of the opinion that personalization is great. In the end, we are all unique. However, how far is too far for personalization? How open are customers to their data being shared? And how do we overcome that? What are the pros and cons? Are we close to passing the threshold of too far? And of course, what should we expect in the next few years in the industry? Join us while we try and get to the bottom of it. As always, I'm not alone, but joined by a panel of amazing guests. First up, I'm joined by my co-host, Benjamin Ensor, Director of Research at 11FS. How are you, Benjamin? I'm really, really well. I'm very happy to be back on the podcast. And back in the studio, I can see. Indeed, in the studio. We're also joined by Gemma Passant, Global Head of Customer Experience at Many Pets. Welcome back. How are you doing today, Gem? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Really lovely to be back. Thanks for having me. Brilliant. And can you give our listeners a little recap about yourself and Many Pets, please? Yeah, sure. So my name's Gem Passant, and I am, as you said, Global Head of CX at Many Pets. So I've been working on and off in CX for the last 14, 15 years, almost before CX was really a thing. We used to call it customer experience back in the day. And I've been at Many Pets for almost two years. Uh, Many Pets is a pet insurance provider. Um, we've been providing our own pet insurance products for cat and dog since 2017. And you can find us in the UK, Sweden, and now also in the US. Well, glad to have you back and a a very successful rebrand, I hope. Uh, And we also have Robert Kozinek, founder and CEO of Zincover. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, Robert? And can you give our listeners a little bit about yourself and Zincover, please? Yeah, thanks, John. And great to be joining you today. Um, So my name is Rob Kozinek. I'm CEO and co-founder of Zincover. Um, My background is uh, is very much in the insurance industry um, throughout the traditional insurance market, company market, Lloyds of London market, and co-founded Zing um, two years ago. And we're all about delivering consumer insurance that's really relevant and without the fat. We're embedded in the sales flow of leading retail brands. We match relevant cover to what our customers are buying or hiring online. And we enable our customers to tailor up their coverage as they shop across multiple Zing partners in one subscription. Oh, sounds fantastic. I love that. Insurance without the fat. I might, <laughs> they should go that onto your sales messaging. Okay, well, let's get started and let's start the conversation right at the beginning. So, Jem, starting with you, where is personalization used in insurance? I think it's really interesting to think about how we define what we mean when we say personalization, because it can be used in many different ways at many different levels. Um, At a basic level, you could argue that it's been used in insurance for a really long time because insurance is based on underwriting for risk. And so, yes, that might not be to an individual person always, but it could be to a group of people or an individual such as an individual business, um, if you think about how brokers have been writing insurance forever. Um, I think where we're seeing it more and more now is in the emotional engagement that we have with customers, insurance customers. And so what might seem really basic things, but just being able to use someone's first name in an email that you send them, which obviously comes from a way that you're using your data dynamically in the background, um, right up to being able to use more specific information for underwriting because you're getting to know your customer better, perhaps over a longer period of time. So I think it's used all the way across the insurance lifecycle from very technical places to very emotionally engaging places. Um, I guess we're going to dive into that a bit more, you know, in the next hour or so. Um, But I think, yeah, 
in all sorts of places. So it can be used in different ways in different parts of the journey. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I would always answer this as it's right the way across the value chain. And to your point, I think we've seen a huge influx. Well, originally, probably in the pricing as we've tried to get better risk analysis. But then in the latter years, it's almost been in the marketing and the communication side. Benjamin, in your view, where do you think it's got the biggest impact or where can personalization create the greatest level of impact? I think it has the biggest impact, as, as Gemma was saying, in the in the underwriting. So if there are things that I can do as a person or as a business to reduce the risk that my business is exposed to, to get potentially get better advice um, based on our circumstances, and ultimately to save money on insurance by avoiding risk, reducing risk, um, that's a huge impact if you can use it well. I think the the to me the big disadvantage, the big problem has been that people have often focused on that marketing element, as, as, as Gemma was saying. You know, sometimes personalization is, you know, just tweaking names and emails and so on. And while that is nice, it's nice to be addressed by your name, it's not true personalization. It's really, you know, still one size fits all um, with my name on it. Um, true personalization is actually, you know, make the product relevant to me and my circumstances. Help me understand risks I'm not covered against. Help me understand where I've got extra cover and help me understand the risks that I'm taking or that I'm exposed to, my family, my business, whatever, um, and help me understand how to manage that. That's what personalization, of the real promise is, that actually we're all better protected from risk and behaving more intelligently because we're more aware of the risks we're exposed to because we're getting personalized advice. I'd, I'd agree with those points, and I and I and I think one of the one of the challenges is how do you personalise that advice and that experience, but in a, in a in a mass market, and do so efficiently. That's always the challenge. We know what the end goal is that, that, that insurance should be as near as possible personalised to what that customer wants. But where we're coming from is, you know, a lot of insurers just using postcode data. As uh, as uh, their starting block of personalization, and there's a lot of multiplicity of, of 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 people and businesses in the same postcode. Yeah, and I think I think a prerequisite to any personalization, whatever the industry, is data. And I think to your point, Rob, is for a long time we've only captured that data once a year annually. We're seeing a, a change now, which is probably you know, led us to a proliferation of kind of personalized products with telematics or sensor-based activities. But I think unless you have that real-time data, you are very much, at, you know, one point in time view in terms of trying to drive that personalized product or that situation, as, as Benjamin was saying, in terms of what it leans into. Yeah, but that's the huge opportunity for, for the insurance industry, right? That the Internet of Things creates this fantastic opportunity for insurance companies to engage with their customers because suddenly you have got data. You know, whether you're talking about sort of industrial risks or, you know, machine, um, you know, airplanes or ships or whether you're talking about, you know, personal lines, you're talking about cars and houses, suddenly you can monitor what's going on in that environment, right? Even at that postcode level, and I agree with you, Rob, it is very crude. At a postcode level, you know, there's things like flood risk. Actually, on a postcode level, flood risk varies enormously and postcode is good enough to do things like, you know, certain types of risk, right? So certain types of weather risk and flood risk and so on. So there's this massive opportunity for insurance companies that are gathering that data and then using that data to underwrite and, and look at risks differently and also warn customers about risks they're exposed to. I think you hit the nail on the head with the, the gathering and using point there, though. I mean, insurers are quite good at gathering lots of data. Whether they gather it in such a way that it can be used effectively 
that's the bigger issue, and that's perhaps where some technology businesses are stepping into um, to, to, to contribute to that. Yeah, I think I find that a really interesting point because thinking about this, it, I think most customers' expectations today are, you know, you, you have all this information on me. You should almost come armed with a a personalized product or a personalized service, but because you know me. The question in insurance is: Do we have the right type of information? You know, are we in a position to actually come armed with that product, or do we have to wait for them to provide more? And I, and I think, I mean, my view is we're almost in a situation where we're asking for more before we can go back to them. I think as well that is true, and I think it's also not true of every customer. So I think there are a range of people who are engaged to non-engaged with um, insurance as an industry and their insurance products. And I think if you're a small to medium business and you're spending maybe thousands a year on your insurance, you'll probably take some time to really think about what that means and spend time probably with your broker thinking about um, what they need to know about you to give you the best possible price, but to make sure you're covered for the right things. If you think about a regular person who's maybe insuring a car, a home, even if it's just contents, and they might be insuring, for example, a pet, or they might um, have the luxury of some health insurance, thinking about all the other things you have to do in your life, um, it's not always the thing that you want to engage with the most. And so there is a, there's, a, there's a point where I think we need to understand that not everybody is ready to want to put in the effort or even to allow us to have that information and also that they might not always know why it's a good thing for us to have that information and I think because of the advent of um, more intense regulation around GDPR or whatever it might be and because the way that life is today where you constantly get emails about everything and every time you go on a website you, it's 30 seconds before you're even into the website content because you've had to think about cookies and close this window and that pop up and goodness knows what else. I think it's driving people to A, understand that they own their own data, B, start to have awareness that that's how free services make money from them. So, you know, if something's free, it seems so good to be true. It's probably because it is. Well, yes, yeah, because actually it's your data that's making the money. And um, so I think people are, can be quite cautious about sharing information and trusting um, how that information is going to be used. And because perhaps we haven't yet been able to demonstrate sufficiently, to your point, John, you know, how that is good for them, because we maybe need more before we can play back. I think there's a, there's a, a kind of a moment in time that we've got to get through before we get to the other side of um, being able to help people understand why sharing just that little bit more information, I'm talking personal lines mainly, but sharing a little bit more information is actually really helpful to getting them a good price for the risk that they need covered. And also how we, how we gather that data, you know, if we take it right out of an insurance context, and you know, if you look at you know, people buying clothes, if you walk into a, a store and, and someone comes up to you and says, I guess you're a size X and you like this style, most people are going to find that a little bit offensive, or at least there's a pretty high chance of it. Yet when we're shopping in clothing apps and it comes up with a recommendation of a certain style in a certain size based on what we bought before, most of us find that pretty useful and we kind of get where the data has come from to produce that match. 
So, you know, I think in, if we look outside at other industries, there are ways to personalize with data being collected that's done in a sensitive way and that people will understand. There's just a bit of a challenge with insurance because people perhaps have other perceptions around how the data is being gathered and how it's used. So let's build on what Jen was just talking about, about sort of how, how we get that. You know, how, how, do we, how do we achieve personalization as an industry? Um, you know, how, let's dig a bit deeper into that. John, I mean, what do you think are some good examples within the industry and to Rob's point from outside the insurance industry of, of personalization? Yeah, I think, I think Jem hit it on the nail. I mean, personalization has been around a long time and we've almost become accustomed to personalization just because it's part of our everyday lives. You know, we, we've had Spotify with creative playlists. We've had recommendations from Netflix and Disney. You know, we're bombarded with these personalization. We just take it for granted now. Um, looking around prior to coming on this call, though, I did find one example of pro- probably the best I'd heard in terms of personalization. I'm going to read it. It was... Um, so Tesla created a detailed driver profile. I don't have a Tesla, but created a detailed driver profile for each driver. So the car remembers the driver's preference for seat, steering wheel, and mirror location, as well as suspension braking, radio presets, and even driving style. So your profile makes the car an extension of you and then allows every time you go into the car and log in your profile, it basically tailors the car to exactly how you want it to be, which I thought was an incredible level of personalization. Um, so it just shows with that additional data and what they can achieve, you know, that they're really pushing the boundaries in that sense. I think within industry, um, we touched on this earlier, you know, if data is a prerequisite, I think those getting real-time data are the ones that are, are able probably to do the most level of personalization across the entire value chain, not just at single points of contact. So, you know, anybody, route, metro mile, by miles, anybody using sort of telematics, um, vitality, obviously, with the smart devices was one of the first. Um, I think they're all great examples of of driving personalization. And, you know, they, they add extra features like if you park in a no park zone, so direct insurance, a French carrier does this, it warns you if you park in, in a wrong place, so you don't get fined. So it's it's building on all those and you can use geolocation to build those additional personalized services. I'm going to give many pets one shout out here <laughs> because I heard this story. Now, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but I thought that, you know, it's not necessarily real time data, but I heard that if a pet dies, which is, is very sad, you send a condolence card and everybody in the company signs it. Yeah, for me, that it's is not everybody in the company. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's a a person will sign it. So when we first started, and it was a very small team in one office, we we went to the shop and bought cards and brought them back and wrote them by hand. We now have a branded many pets card that that goes out because obviously we're big enough now to create our own card. But the, we send it, obviously, as an emotional support um, to let people know we're thinking of them, um, but also because it has a, a helpline number in it. So we partner with the Blue Cross for a bereavement helpline. So if someone's pet has died or is lost or stolen or gone missing, um, then we want people to know that they've got that service and, and how to access it. And so we do send something in the post um, to actually arrive at your home address with that information in that you can keep. That's really lovely. I thought, that, yeah, just a, a fantastic touch of of, of personalization. It shows you, and it, it's very, you know, it's very. We talk a lot about sort of personalization being contextual and relevant, and I think that is is such a great example. It's interesting, isn't it? Because um, people have asked me in a not people at many pets. Other people have asked me that person is they're not your customer in that context anymore because the pet is not around anymore. 
So, you know, does it cost a lot of money or what's the value? And I think there's a, I mean, putting all of that aside because it's it's not a hugely expensive thing to do. Um, it's the right thing to do. Uh, one of our values is do the right thing. And, and a lot of our frontline staff kind of live by that, you know, day in, day out. But also it's it's about not only making people feel supported for that pet, but they're going to go and get another pet and they'll remember that we looked after them and that it felt good. And, you know, it's to me, a lot of it's about building trust. And I think that's where a lot of the challenge with personalisation and insurance comes from in terms of what what we've all been talking about in terms of how to get the data. Because if you think about your examples that you used about Spotify and Netflix, which we're really used to, it's the same with something like when you get a new phone. If you've got an Apple phone or if you've got an Android phone, when you get your new phone, what happens is, as long as it's plugged into your iCloud or whatever, all your apps appear in the same places, in the same groupings, exactly the same apps. It's really normal for us to say, a thing that I need to use that's in front of me every day, like my telephone or the car that I drive, I want that to be as personalised as possible. But in order to be confident and comfortable to allow somebody like an insurer to have that information about me, I need to trust them. And because historically especially in, I'll, I'll talk mainly to personal lines because that's my main experience. Because it's a grab new customers cheaper and cycle at renewal. Now the FCA is obviously massively turning the tables on that right now, but that's how it's been. People are conditioned to shop around, which actually does the opposite of build trust, not only just in one organisation, but in any organisation. And it means that you don't imagine that you're going to have a long-term relationship with this insurance company. They're not your partner in some kind of way. They're just something you have to have for a year and then you you can switch and go somewhere else because you're trying to get the best price. Um, so I think a lot of the challenges that we face are around trust and I'm hoping that the fairer pricing regulation is actually going to help us overcome some of that. Rob, I'd love to bring you back in on, on this and, and do you do you agree with with Jem that that, that trust is, is, is the big issue? What I'm curious what you think is slowing the industry down and preventing the adoption of personalization. And I'm also just nervous of diving too deep into British personal lines because the British personal lines market is a little bit unusual. That you know the switching frequency and the disloyalty is particularly acute in UK personal lines. I think we, you know, if you move to I don't know, Germany or Italy or whatever, you, or the, the States, you don't see quite the same behaviors. Um, but, but Rob, what, what do you think the blockers are? Is it is it that customers? Is it data, as you as you were saying earlier, or do you think there are other blockers as well? I think it's all of those. Um, I, I also, think it's, it's got to be it's got to be two way. You know, in, in, insurers have, and the insurance industry has perhaps used personalization as a as as a pricing tool. So, how can I um, assess my risk better by understanding my customer? The business I'm insuring, whatever it may be, and um, and to get more personalised pricing work. Well, that's a bit of a one-way street, you know. With what Jem's talking about in terms of your personalised iPhone or John with the Tesla, there's something that you're that you're giving back there. And I think the insurance industry has got to get better at giving back. Sure, I can gather better usable data to help me price risk. You know, we do that at Zing, and we think it helps us to provide more sustainable pricing. But actually, it ought to be more about delivering more relevant cover to that customer so that they don't, and, I, and I'm sorry to, I've gone a bit British again, I'm confident about that, <laughs> but, uh, but so that the people don't constantly feel the need to shop around because they think, gosh, my insurer not only understands how to price me, but they understand what I want out of my insurance. 
and getting that level of personalization of the product. And I think the industry is getting better at that. It's all going to be data data driven, but it's just a difference of approach as well. Understanding it's a two-way street. So isn't the crux of this then really, it's, it's the value exchange. It's about what am I going to get as a customer in return for giving more data to the insurance company, giving more access? I love the point, Rob, you're talking about you know, giving, giving customers more back. It, it builds on what John was talking about, about you know, direct assurance in France, warning you about you know if you're parking in the wrong place. I think some of the American insurance companies have been doing similar things. So is part of the path to personal, more personalization about thinking smarter about, okay, what do we use about, with the data we have? Yes, we can price better, but are there other things we can do? I, I mean, I love the condolence card. That's great. Hopefully that's not a common occurrence in, in other personal lines. But is, is part of it a question to insurance companies about, okay, what else are you going to do with that data? You know, why else should the customers give you the data? What will you do with it if you have it? I think even before we get there, there's a, there's a state of mind piece, and we've, we've slightly touched upon that. There's also, if we're looking at, um, at the industry, the extent to which it's, it's fragmented and the individual bits of it are siloed means that the industry is stymied from, 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 from genuine personalization. When we have a broker collecting one set of data for one set of uses and an underwriter that's perhaps responsible for designing a product that they're principally thinking about distributing via broker, and claims might be handled by a different person, and there's different IT infrastructure across at least at least each of those, if not several IT infrastructure within within each element of that. Well, how do you get that feed, feedback loop going that is better better at crafting your product to what your customers want, let alone understanding really where your claims are coming from and therefore how you can fine tune the pricing. So that that, fra- that industry fragmentation is 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 already an issue that needs to be better overcome, so that we can then, as an industry, be in a better place to think about what data we're going to gather once we're better able to use it. Yeah. So structurally, there are individual insurance companies that can't build a single view of their own customers, let alone a holistic view of that customer and all of the risks that he or she or or, or, or that that business faces. Okay, well, now we're just going to go to a quick break and we will be back very shortly. How will Web3 unlock the future financial services and change the way we think about money? Our first ever Web3 report takes a deep dive into the biggest conversation taking place in finance. Unpacking tokens, stablecoins, ESG, DAOs, DeFi, regulation, and so much more. We also take a look at the opportunities it presents for your business. For crypto natives and newbies, head to 11fs.com forward slash Web3 report to download it today and get Web3 ready. Welcome back. Uh, let's get on with the show. So now we're going to look at some of the pros and cons of personalization. So, Jem, with all this data, what are the positives? And probably more importantly, because I think we've covered a lot of the positives, what do you see as the negatives? I think we have covered a lot of the positives. I think uh, there's a huge amount of positivity that could come from what we've talked about in terms of gathering data and then using it, which means the ability to connect the data up and know what we have for each customer and how we can support them better with that data. I think 
the, the big negative for me is, is one of perception around it feeling invasive in some way. Um, I think you can break that down into multiple smaller negatives, but that's my biggest concern about it. And I think as organisations find their feet more and more with this type of thing and customers are becoming more used to it in some contexts, like we've talked about, particularly with subscription services like Netflix or Spotify or devices that they use, but less used to it in something like an insurance context, I think we we risk pushing too hard too fast or only pushing in certain places. So we've got data about a particular part of their lives or a particular part of their journey and we push maybe a little too hard and that feels invasive, but we don't do it anywhere else so it feels inconsistent. I think we we risk customers not reacting to it particularly well. I think it needs to be done quite delicately and I think we need to build it over time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Rob, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this one because I, I do think it's quite a, a strong question. What, what do you see as the negatives? I, I, I'd follow on from Gem's point there. I, th- I think I think communication's really key. You know, that's been a bit more variable in, 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 amongst the insurance industry as to how well we communicate with our customers. If an increased use of data and, and personal data is seen as invasive, or in a way even worse, seen as big brother, then, then there's going to be pushback to that. And, and let's face it, the insurance industry, in some respects, has some, has some reputational issues already. So I think it's really incumbent upon insurers, as hopefully all insurers get better about using data to provide a better service to their customer, to properly communicate how, why, why data is being collected and how it's being used and, um, and, and to demonstrate how that's to, to the benefit of the customer. The, the real challenge there is how you do that in about you know, 45 seconds, because that's most people's attention span when it comes to insurance. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I, you know, we, we talk a lot on this show about communication and education, but I think you've made a really good point about the 45 seconds, because we talk about it a lot, but you're right, how do you do it in 45 seconds? I, I know when telematics was first launched, you know, people were very scared about, will you report me to the police if I'm speeding? And, you know, it, it put people off for a long, long time. So, I mean, the answer is no, but if you keep doing it, we'll warn you and eventually we'll cancel your policy. But I, I think it's, you know, how do you get that level of trust? And, you know, from an industry that's not known, to be fair, we didn't treat customers fairly for years. So you're trying to break a kind of uh, a status quo that's been around for a long, long time. Benjamin, I mean, we, we, we talk about the data, but and we talked about value exchange. Do you, do you think insurers have the right data or what would it take for customers to give up more of the right data, do you think? I think that's a really important point about what type of data that we, that we haven't touched on so far that we need to. Um, if you are gathering as an insurance company, you're gathering behavioral data about how I behave, about the risks that I'm exposed to as an individual, as a family, as a business or whatever, there's a sort of reasonable exchange there. Um, and customers may be willing to give up or to provide more data on the basis that they might get lower premiums or other other advantages. You know, particularly people think they're a better than average driver, which most of us believe, right? Um, on the other hand, if you're talking about something like genetic data, you know, who I am, suddenly it's very, very different, right? You know, the European Union obviously famously, you know, um, outlawed uh, discriminating based on gender um, for policies. But, you know, imagine you start 
using my genetic data to price, you know, let's say health insurance or, or even other types of insurance. Wow. You know, suddenly that's a very, very different game. And I'm very, very uncomfortable with that as, you know, as a, as a customer in general, you know, I think people in general. So I think we need to think about what types of data are we talking about? Because there's data that is acutely personal, things like genetic data. There's behavioral data where actually it seems like a, a more reasonable trade-off, particularly if the insurance company can then give the customer some advice, help them um, reduce risk and, and so on. So I think if we sort of take, come back to your question of do insurance companies have the right type of data, there's quite a good question about what is the right type of data. It's interesting in the 45 seconds point, well, if you can gather Internet of Things type data, if you can gather the data automatically, then maybe the customer doesn't actually have to spend all that time giving you the data, right? Why does the data have to be a manual data input, right? Can we not get smarter about gathering data? You know, you, you, you mentioned the example of Tesla earlier. Well, okay, what can car manufacturers do? What can home builders do? You know, there's data coming out of all sorts of devices. So how does the insurance industry tap into more of that data so that maybe I don't have to give you the data. I give you permission to access my data. And that's where I think things like open data initiatives suddenly look very, very interesting. But give me more than just insurance. Give me other value on top of the insurance. Because I don't want insurance. I, you know, I want to protection from risk and other stuff. I, I, I completely agree with you, Benjamin, on the, on the we, should be, we should be gathering this data automatically. But, you know, no one wants to fill out an insurance form to get access to a product. The, the 45 second point, I think, is if we as an industry are gathering data, perhaps without our co customers being fully cognizant of what data we're gathering about them and from where, I think we've got to be really good at communicating why we're doing that and, and how it's to their benefit, um, how, it's, how it's creating better coverage, better services, all those points that you rightly make there, that it's good for them. I also think as an industry, we've got to be respectful of people who choose not to share their data and make sure that they're not going to suffer greater exclusion from financial services by virtue of being sensitive around the sharing of their data. Yeah, that's a really good point. That, 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 that sort of more data or, or real-time gathering of data or additional data sources leads me on to a kind of a, a question for you, Jem, really, which is, you know, as we move to a world towards potentially a world of embedded finance and embedded insurance, um, where we embed financial services and products within other products. Um, so I'm going to go to Re Revolut has just started doing pet insurance, for example. So they've got additional information. You know, they now have information on you and your bank account and what you spend and everything else. Do, do you think insurers are going to be at a disadvantage in the future with data? Because these other companies have, have lots more information and, and different data sources. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, everybody wants to get involved in pet insurance at the moment because it went so well over the pandemic. But I think you're right. So um, yes, of course, Revolut, as an example, will have more information about a customer that they're insuring for pet insurance than we might have for the same customer because they've got all of their behavioural information about how they spend their money and, and what they do every month. Um, I think it could put us at a disadvantage. Um, and at the same time, I think it comes back to two things. One is the trust and building longer term relationships. So I don't know if this is true in other countries, but statistically in the UK, you're more likely to change your life partner than you are to change your main bank, or you certainly were before the complete disruption of app-only banking. So that's, I'm sure that's changed now. But what that really means is there are lots of um, organisations that we um, have relationships with as customers, 
that get to know us really well because we have really long relationships with them. So I think that's definitely one thing that we that we need to consider. And then the other part, which I think comes from trust, and then the other part that we were talking about um, that everybody's mentioned is around the value exchange. So it needs to go beyond insurance. So I think that's about insurers thinking beyond just the core product and what they can offer instead. And I think if people understood that by sharing more information, they could be supported to have better, healthier lives, safer, driving, less likely to have a problem in their home, whatever it might be, then I think that's how we can help. We just haven't quite managed to crack that yet, I don't think. But if you think about, for example, if we had a DNA result for your pet, that in time we might be able to say, well, this pet is more likely for this to happen. You don't want that to happen. We don't want it to happen because we'd have to pay a claim for it and we don't want the distress for the, the pet or the owner. Actually, what we can give you is guidance on this or a course on that or offer you some information that takes you towards a specialist for this that maybe is covered by your policy or an additional wellness product or something extra that means that we're looking beyond. Because I think we actually have a lot of data that helps us to be more preventative, helps people to prevent the things that might go wrong that they'd have to claim for. And that's in their interests as a customer and it's in the insurer's interest as well to prevent claims. So I think there's a huge synergy to it. We just have to make sure that the, the value exchange is, is really obvious. And, and I think one thing that you guys have done very well there is look beyond just the, the insurance element, just the insurance part of it. It's going the full life cycle of, you know, what does it mean to look for a pet, to buy a pet? A bit like if people who go for electric cars, they're quite passionate. You know, people consider lots of additional things like, you know, how many miles can I get? Where are the electric charging points? It's, it goes way beyond just I'm buying a car, I'm buying insurance. There's actually lots of additional questions. And maybe that's the way insurers can continually differentiate themselves from got multi-app, super-app type players or embedded players is actually maybe we can play up and down the value stream or maybe we can just partner and we can partner with others to, to have a better value exchange. I'm going to move us on because we're moving into the last section. So Benjamin, back over to yourself. Yeah, so I think the question now is is thinking about what does what does the what does the future look like? How does how does this evolve? I'm quite a big believer in um, embedded insurance. I think we will see insurance getting embedded into lots of other things because insurance isn't something customers want. It's it's a way of protecting other things. So I think it was very interesting listening to you, Gemma, about what you were talking about and so on. I think that there is definitely a, a world in which insurance companies start partnering with other companies to gather more data, data from, you know, connected devices and so on that enable them to start personalizing the insurance, where some in some cases, the product is being personalized, right? That, you know, the Tesla, you're talking about, John, the Tesla seat and so on. So I think personalized insurance will become part of a wider personalization of certain types of, of, of more complex products and services clearly you know ordinary you know food and things it's not going to get personalized um, but i think we're going to see a wider growth of personalized products i think the real challenge comes on how do you personalize an individual's insurance how do you get that holistic view of an in individual so you can personalize that and truly help me as a customer understand all the risks i'm exposed to john what's your take what do you think the right balance is um you know how, how far do you think personalization can go probably a couple yeah a couple of points we've already talked on so i think first of all it's got to be consensual 
I think, you know, people have to sign up to share their data and the whole value exchange is a trust. Yeah, I trust if I give you my data, you will use it in the right way. Give me the best product. I think I'm going to come back to something we touched on at the very start and about personalization because we we have seen individual personalization in terms of, you know, hello, John and, and naming and other bits and pieces. And I think that will continue and we should push that as far as possible. I think the bit that you mentioned, Benjamin, though, about personalization, and we talked about it segmentation, is in underwriting, I do think there is a limit. So personalization on the marketing side of things, yes, and intelligent services, take, take it as far as you want with consent. Underwriting, I mean, the very essence of insurance is pooling risk. And if we get to the level of personalization, like you said, DNA, where they start using DNA results, what happens if suddenly you know, insurers basically start taking out all high risk because you've got hereditary disease or something, which is terrible, God forbid. And people actually insurers look for the best risks and look to avoid the worst risks um, by not providing cover or making it unaffordable. But split's got to be between behavioral personalization and sort of genetic or other types of personalization. Because if if you behave if you personalize on behavior, you could potentially encourage people to reduce the risk they're taking. Correct. Which is a good thing. If you personalize on DNA, you potentially discriminate against huge groups of people, which is a terrible thing. Yeah, and, and, and ultimately, if we, do, if we don't find the balance and if insurers don't find the balance, I, I can't come up with a good answer, then politicians will come up with a bad one for them. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, what's, what's, what's your view on how this is going to evolve and play out? Oh, I think it's going to evolve in a number of different ways, but I suppose... My personal view on it is that we're very, we're often very quick um, within the insurance industry when we talk about personalization to jump to ancillary services, the what else can we do? Can we help someone if they park on a double yellow line or can we help someone to, to, to prevent accidents? And I think that's great. You know, I think you know, we ought to be doing all of that for our customers where it's appropriate to do so. But when we're on this data and personalization yeah. We've got, as an industry, a long way to go. So let's make sure that we're using, I say, let's make sure that we're using the opportunity of personalization, the data we can get by being embedded to make sure that that core product is really good and really relevant and pays claims that customers expect have claims paid for. And if we can provide a world of um, services beyond that that customers want, then then great. But but I think we've 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 got an opportunity on the on the core business of insurance to embrace that. Jim, do you think do you think that's right? And do you think insurers can use personalization to sort of build more trust in the way that that, that you've you've been trying to do? I think it's possible. I don't think it's the easiest thing to do. And I think it partly comes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, how real-time you can get with the information. Because insurance, broadly speaking, at least in the UK, is an annual contract, you end up having, even if you have real-time information, you have it for, let's say, the 45 seconds where somebody's doing a quote, and then that's that's kind of set for a year. And it might not be that we that we look at that risk again or the customer might not engage in, in that way again. And... I feel like in order to help people understand how personalization can help them, we customers to understand it, we need to be engaging in 
considering that kind of data more than just once in every 12-month cycle. And actually, the way that the industry is set up, again, in the UK, I'm speaking about specifically, but I actually think it's the same in a lot of other countries as well. The way the industry is set up almost prevents that in a way because it is broadly a a 12-month contract, which means we need to find other ways to engage throughout the life cycle of an annual product um, and hopefully have a longer relationship than that anyway to understand um, what's going on for people, what's different. And if you take pet, for example, to understand what's going on for the pet um, because lots changes in, in a 12-month period. And so we need to be able to build a relationship that allows us to take that information in, but also to the points that we've already made, not penalise anybody for it, just hope that it helps us to support them better in whatever way we can during that during that period of time. Um, but of course, there's again, there's a balance. And, I, and I, for me, I, the thing I hope the most is that we're thoughtful. And what I mean by that is I was at Aviva a very long time ago, um, (laughs) when we first tried to do telematics and we invested a lot and it didn't really take off. We, we, I mean, Aviva came back to it later, um, but the market just wasn't ready. And it's to your points, John, that you made earlier about things like people thought that, you know, they'd get reported to the police if they did 72 in a 70 zone or whatever it might be. Um, I, I actually think we've got time. I do think we've got a bit of time to think carefully about what we're doing who we need to be connected with and how, including partners, to the point you made earlier, Benjamin, in terms of, you know, other organisations. Also, Rob, what you were saying about how fragmented it can be. I think we've got a bit of time to be thoughtful about how we do it because I don't think that people are immediately ready for the level of personalisation perhaps that we might want to go to. And I think if we can have that, just that breathing space for a minute instead of trying to rush I think we'll get a much better result, both for the insurance organisations and for the customers. And interestingly, we haven't really talked about different generations and different cultures and different nationalities because there are countries in the world where people are very, very concerned about data and you know very distrustful of companies or very distrustful of their governments. And there are other countries in the world where people are much more trusting. And then, of course, you do have those sort of fairly large generational differences where Broadly speaking, younger people are more comfortable with a bigger digital exhaust. They're more comfortable sharing data, maybe just because they're more used to it. And I guess that that creates opportunity. You know, maybe, you know, it's like you know, 17-year-olds in the UK, when you can start driving at 17, you cannot get insurance without that being in some way behavioral and telematics because it's just too expensive because the chance that it's a young man who's going to take masses of risk is just way too high. So there are, you know, there are sort of pockets of the market where that heavy personalization has to be there. Do we think we'll see different generations or different segments of the market really driving it? I, I was also interested, Jen, when you were set, started saying, oh, because of the way the market's structured, as soon as I hear someone saying that, I'm thinking, right, there's an opportunity for disruptors there. Someone will, you know, people will come in. Um, you know, why should a policy be 12 months? I mean, okay, it's a year, it's normal, but why? Saga did a, do a two-year policy, which was incredibly successful, or maybe it was a three-year policy. So, and and others have started moving to subscription-based insurance. So I I agree, Benjamin. That I mean that is the you know the ninety-nine percent of policies are probably one year, but there are others that have broken the mold, albeit not pushed it too far, but changed it a little bit. And I think to your point, Gemma, I, I do like the we've got time. Um, I think it's about the right choices because. Um, you know, for a long time, you know, I was always 
you know, we were always wrestling with how do we get more engagement from customers? How do we stop it being the 2.6, 2.7 times a year engagement points? And how do we get this continuous engagement? But actually, not everybody wants a relationship with their insurer. I think it's, you know, like I said, we talk a lot about what is relevant and contextual. And, and I think that's where things like Embedded can offer a hugely personalized service, which doesn't necessarily have to be driven from the insurer. You know, I remember a long time ago, Hiscox did a deal with free agents, you know, for small business and small businesses will be going into free agent, you know, on a regular basis doing their accounting. And on the partnership, you know, there's nothing to stop you of saying, well, you've taken on another employee up your public, up your liability insurance, employee liability insurance. If you've got intelligent services, you can make it very personalized, but that could be driven from somebody else but using insurance. And I, and I think we're going to, I think that is the future is actually, where do you make those contextual touch points that most relevant? And it could be through somebody else embedding insurance or in the case of telematics and real-time data, actually it's directly with your insurer on how do I drive? And I think it's finding the balance between the two and, and people have got time to figure that out. Yeah, I think those are all really good points. I think, you know, on the, on the, on the subscription bit, you know, we've got to get away from 12 months subscription based and you have to get those touch points during the year as to as to how your customers profile is changing if you're if you're going to offer something relevant also think to that 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 sort of generational point i think it's a really good point i think i don't think we should worry too much about it because it's a big enough market with enough channels that we can cater to what different groups and different generations want. Some will want an embedded experience. Some will just want to go to an aggregator once a year and see what the best price for a, a standard product that comes back with. Some will stay with the same insurer for seven years and will never want to look at it. There is space in the market and I, uh, it, 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 um, personalization shouldn't be the norm for everyone. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'm going to wrap up today. I, I think we could probably continue talking on this for another half an hour, hour. I think there's probably a, a part two to this conversation, but that's all we've got time for today. So that wraps up today's discussion. Uh, so thank you ever so much for joining me. Um, as always, where can people find out more about you and your companies? Jem, let's start with you. Yep. So you can find me on LinkedIn. So Jem Passant. And you can find more about Many Pets at manypets.com. And Rob, how about yourself? And you can also find me on LinkedIn, Robert Korsenek. You can find uh, detail about Zing at zingcover.com. And you can look out for the Zing logo when you're shopping online and avail yourself of our services. Fantastic. And Benjamin? I'm also on LinkedIn. And you can find out about all the work that we do at 11FS on 11FS.com. And you can find me, John Bean, also on LinkedIn. And as per Benjamin, at 11FS and through 11FS.com. Well, that's all we've got time for. So thanks for listening. If you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps us to make the show better and helps others find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media, just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider, or you can find us at Twitter on InsTech Insiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you very much and goodbye. Goodbye.